Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Joining us will be sister, doctor, and retired colonel, Dee Dee Byrne, who provides free medical care and surgery to patients in the District of Columbia. She had her medical license temporarily revoked because she wanted to radically witness to the pro-life cause by not receiving a COVID vaccine that had even remote connection to researcher testing with cells from aborted babies. She's going to update us on the status of her story, and I think with some surprises that have not been published in stories I have read about her. So, and we'll also follow up with an interview of the attorney from the Thomas More Society who has helped her get back into the practice of medicine. So, Chris, what do you think about what's you know been going on with some of these things about religious freedom and uh, conscience protection for Catholics? Yeah, I, I think it's really easy to uh, convince yourself that this is an obscure, maybe academic, maybe sort of marginal uh, topic that probably doesn't affect you know, the average listener uh, at their job. But the reality, I think, couldn't be further from that. This is a, a real story about a real person, a sister, Dr. Colonel, um, who, who really lost their ability to, to practice medicine because they wouldn't comply with a demand. Um, you know, my own specialty, obstetrics and gynecology, recently released a statement saying there should be no blocks uh, and no obstacles to so-called gender-affirming care. Now, taken to its logical conclusion, that means if I were to refuse to participate in puberty-blocking drugs for, say, a nine-year-old girl, I would be an obstacle to gender-affirming care by their definition. That could mean my specialty designation, my board certification is at risk. I lose that, I can't practice at the hospital. So these are real problems. We've had some real shows about real people with some of these same problems. Yes, episode number 175, our friend Bill Toffler. He, was a, he is a family physician who uh, helped establish the family practice department there. And then 30 years later, by one of his former residents who becomes the chief, is finally fired because mm. he refuses to prescribe contraceptives, even though his uh, scores from his patients have been outstanding and people have not been complaining about him. Yeah. And I think one of my all-time favorite episodes that we've done is episode 175. So listeners, if you want to look that one up on our website, um, that's with Megan Kreft. Actually, and remember, Megan was 178. Bill was oh, 175. They oh, were close uh, together. <laughs> three episodes apart. Yes. Yeah, 178. Sorry. Look both of those episodes up. But Megan, remember, was the physician assistant uh, in the Pacific Northwest practicing at a so-called Catholic institution. She had a contract that said she would not have to violate church teachings. Then she refused to refill puberty-blocking drugs for a young boy and was fired as a result. Now, the great story there is Megan went to court and she actually won a case against them. But these are not theoretical. These are real people facing real problems every day. Yeah, we also know about a member of the Catholic Medical Association who lost a job as a pediatrician because of their refusal to do that, prescribe purity blocking drugs. So uh, on a previous episode, Lewis Brown, one of the people behind CMF Curo who sponsors us, said that religious freedom is really the freedom to love our patients the way that we think best. And uh, some of us believe it's not loving to do things that is harmful. Right. And I'm not making a judgment as a physician on whether that person does it or doesn't do it. I'm making a judgment on whether I participate uh, in it. And I think that's an important distinction. In our discussion with Sister Didi and with Christopher, her attorney, I think we'll center on the fact that one has the ability to say no, regardless of the motivations behind that. You know, so it would be easy to get sort of lost in the details of, you know, she was declining vaccination or gender blocking, affirming care, things like that. That's tempting. Let's not do that. What we want to focus on is do we have the protections as religious people to practice our religion when that means saying no to something that the state wants us to do? 
Well, one thing I want to learn from Christopher is what does the law see as the difference, if there is a difference, between religious no. freedom rights and conscience rights? That's a great um, question. Yeah, and I'm sure that morally there's probably a different answer than there is legally. Right. And, you know, our listeners, I'm sure, remember the famous wedding cake case where a baker, I believe in Denver, Colorado, said, I really don't want to make a cake for you. That case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. So it's not just medicine. Uh, And so that's why I think your question is such a good one. You know, if you're a plumber and you say, I don't want to take care or serve, I should say, this customer for whatever reason, where do your rights stop and their rights start? I can't wait to hear what he has to say about that. Yes. And we also know another story of somebody, and we don't want to reveal their um, their identity, but somebody who worked for uh, a large corporation uh, as a nurse practitioner and actually had a signed contract, which I have seen, that said they could practice and not have to prescribe contraceptives. Well, 10 years later, this corporation says, well, yes, you do. And uh, there was no recourse for them, and they were fired even though they had it in writing. Yeah, 10 years later, for no reason at all, this particular nurse practitioner, probably one of the most popular in the company's history, one of the most amazing practitioners I've certainly ever met, was just doing what she had been doing for, as you say, a decade. And all of the sudden, they chose to enforce the unenforceable, you would think. And she lost her job, really with no ability, um, no recourse that she could take. So... We're going to move into our interview after the medical trivia question. And the medical trivia question category uh, I chose was medical care in underserved areas. And the reason I chose that is because Sister Didi serves an underserved area, District of Columbia. How does that work, Chris? Well, it's underserved in a lot of ways, I think. <laughs> but she's, she's taking care of the invisibles in the Washington yes. district. That is that is the poor, the homeless, the disenfranchised. That's where she. Uh, that's where she does her work. So the question is uh, based on results from a U.S. News and World Report ranking. They rank medical schools every year, and one of the things they look at is the percentage of graduates practice in a rural area six to eight years after graduation. Rural areas are underserved. So for context, your doctor, doctor co-host, my medical school, Mayo Clinic. are in rural areas. Chris's School, University of Florida, 44% are in rural areas six to eight years later. And Andrew's School at Michigan State University, 45%. Well, Michigan State is number 32 on the list. There's 31 above it. Number one was the University of South Carolina. And the reason I look six to eight years out is there are scholarships for people to practice in underserved areas and they have to pay it back. But the payback is always much less than six years. So they want to see who really wants to be there. So what the question is then, what percentage of the graduates of the University of South Carolina are practicing in rural areas six to eight years after graduation? You're going to have to hang around till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back with Sister Didi's interview here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And now we have with us our special guest for today, Sister Dr. Colonel Retired Didi Byrne. She's in Washington, D.C., and she's going to tell us an incredible story. Sister, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for inviting me. Sister, I think it'd be a good idea for listeners to get a good idea of who you are by first describing what you've been doing for your patients while living out your religious vows. So first, what led to your decision to become a physician? I think it was a calling um, as a little girl. Uh, my father was a doc- is a doctor, but he's up in the pearly gates now. My father was a thoracic surgeon. Ah. And he was a great role model for me in the both the medical and the religious. Both both my parents were beautiful role models. But dad was a doctor and he loved what he did. Those were the great days where doctors could take care of patients for free and he'd get chickens as a gift or <laughs> you know, payment. I think um, he t- used the same charging. He did aneurysms and chest cases and he never changed his fee because a new surgeon came in to, to share an office with him and he said, your dad's using the same fee that people used 20 years ago. So he just, he served people. He loved people and caring for them. Like we all are, right? Doctors. Yes. So sister, most doctors don't specialize in two different fields, but you did in family medicine and general surgery. How did that happen? By the grace of God, I think um, 
I uh, went into family medicine originally because I liked the idea of being able to kind of cover everyone from the womb to the tomb, the little babies to the to the moms. and did the, I thought it would be the best preparation for missionary work, which is what I felt called to do. But then as I finished my Army commitment as a family physician in those earlier years, in the early 90s, I was following my heart, which was to really do surgery. And I thought I would just give it a try, did a 40-day Ignatian retreat, prayed about not only my religious discernment, but you know the further discernment as being a surgeon. And by the grace of God, I was, able, I was accepted and was able to pursue that dream. Wow, that's amazing, Sister. You know, most of us probably, I mean, sadly, have never had a conversation with a religious sister. I'll bet the vast majority of our listeners have not. And they certainly have never met a religious sister who's also a physician, who's also two kinds of physicians, uh, one of which being a surgeon. And so I'm pretty sure you're used to being really special, but our, our listeners probably need a minute to sort of uh, you know, take that in. Maybe uh, we could divert just a little bit. And- I don't really feel that special, though. I mean, I, <laughs> I just try to do, I feel like a pack mule. And in the Army terms, you know, boots on the ground, Lord, you know, what do I do today serving you? So, I mean, wow. I don't see Amen. this as anything really, anything more spectacular than what God would want us all to be doing. So thank you for that, but I don't feel that way. <laughs> well, that, that probably has something to do with why you're sitting here, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just a couple of words on sort of the the state of religious life for women today. I mean, you know, a generation ago, maybe, especially two generations ago, all of our kids would have been taught in school by women who look and dress like you do. Uh, That's certainly not true today. Um, Mm -hmm. Do do you have a sense of why that is and what that means and what the future might look like uh, in that regard? Clearly, clearly the, the desecration of the baby in the womb. I think that the ground zero of annihilment is, you know, uh, the mother the, in the womb, the baby in the womb. And it's like a, a placid pond where a stone is, is um, thrown in and it ripples out. So family life has been desecrated. You know, fathers are no longer men. Um, single parents, abortion, euthanasia, contracepting. Um, now we're... You know, we're clapping because an archbishop did what he lovingly should do, which is deny a pro-abort politician that's in the public realm communion. And and that's, you know, I love Archbishop Corleone because he's very heroic, but he's also doing what he should be doing because it's a loving thing to do. It's like chemotherapy for a cancer patient. It doesn't feel good, but you're going to get better. So... I, I would I would say it's uh, everything kind of leans toward that abortive death mentality. And so families have been disseminated, destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a beautiful family where, I mean, we were all normal kids that got into trouble every now and then, but one of eight, of, I was one of eight. My youngest brother is a priest, actually now a bishop. And, um, but we, I would say that we all, and, and the other siblings that are married are, thanks be to God, married still and i think that it's the the garden the of vocations is from your mother and father and if you don't have that security you don't have that parenting um and guidance and love as a teamwork from a mother and a father it's always a harder start for people and then um, we're sort of in a time when people aren't really listening to the lord as much the Eucharist is no longer, you know, what, 30% of people believe in the real presence. That's a real problem. Mm. How can you get young people to even want to go to church if it's um, if they don't believe in the real presence of Jesus? And so God calls us, calls you to be married men and called me to be a religious sister. It was no more, no greater, no less than anything else. It's just a calling from God. Well, sister... Your calling involves working at a free clinic in D.C. Tell us about that clinic, and that'll be a good lead-in to the particular story we're going to talk about. Well, I have my hands in a few pots. Um, I'm a volunteer at Catholic Charities Clinic in D.C. where I do general surgery um, through a um, sibling hospital. I'll give them a shout-out. They let me operate for free. I do my part for free, so the patients pay a little bit 
for their, you know, to get the gallbladder removed or the hernia repaired um, through Catholic, they get something recently. But our convent runs a pro bono physical therapy clinic, and we run a diabetic eye clinic, and now we have a, a pregnancy um, triage center where we have women who come. We have one, maybe now two women who live in our house next door. So I do the abortion pill reversal. We have moms that come from Planned Parenthood. We pull them away to let them see their baby in their womb to realize that it's life. So we have all that. Plus I do missionary work. I haven't been there since COVID, but I usually go to Haiti and I've gone to other places in the past, uh, but Haiti's our big focus right now. So, so it's like an octopus being, <laughs> you know, doing what we can at every level. So Sibley Hospital you work at, is there another clinic where you see patients too? Well, I see, I see patients at the Catholic Charities Clinic. And so I see things in, okay. in my convent here, Sacred Heart Clinic. Of course you do. <laughs> and we also and um, and I have operating privileges at Sibley Memorial Hospital. It's under Hopkins. I also have privileges at Georgetown, but I really don't do much there. We have med students that come to us the first year. The baby docs come to us to have an experience at our convent to see patients during the diabetic eye clinic, the Dan Finkelstein Eye Clinic. The name of the clinic, and um, and uh, so that's it. But and they both have accepted my religious exemption. Uh, so you want me to jump right into that story? Well, what I'd like to um, go is you. You've had COVID. What month did you have COVID nineteen? In um, January of this year. Of twenty two. Twenty twenty two. Right. And when did the the mandate for healthcare workers in DC come out to be vaccinated. Well, they had asked us in August of last year to write a letter to get vaccinated. If you had a medical or religious reason, you write your letter there. So I wrote a religious exemption as well as a few friends of mine. And then there was like a quiet period. And then in January of 2022, they wrote another letter. They asked us to, re to reaffirm and basically say again why I don't want the vac this lovely vaccine. And so I wrote another letter uh, explaining. And then in February, like 22nd or so, I, I saw a cryptic email on a Saturday night stating that I had five days to get vaccinated or I would lose my license because I was at I was risking, I was risking the DC, Dr. Chris Ferrer could explain better, but I was risking people um, from, since I was not vaccinated from now, getting- to be, to be clear, sister, you said license. You didn't mean privileges. You actually meant your license, didn't you? The DC well, the, the government was, said I would lose my license. License, yeah. yeah. That's what I wanted to call out because we've talked with physicians before about losing privileges at a specific hospital maybe, but if you lose your license, by you can't default, practice. you lose privileges everywhere and anywhere. So it's even a more egregious, serious so, problem. So and by the time you got that letter, you had already had COVID, correct? Correct. And at that time, it was clearly known um, some of our infectious disease experts we've had on the show that having the infection was more protective than two doses of either mRNA vaccine, but not quite as protective as three. But all they wanted you to have was two. So in reality, you even had a, as much or more immunity than they wanted. What do you think leads to this kind of action on their part, sister? Um, I, I think that... They probably wanted me to be the example of others to follow because I think I was the first to get the rejection and that if I cowered and said, okay, I'll take the vaccine or boo-hoo, I won't practice medicine in D.C. anymore, then they the rest would go follow easily. It would be an easy target because I serve the poor. I've been vaccinated. I mean, I've been, I'm immune. I have proof right. of immunity. I've been working uh, for the last two years before the, this beloved vaccine came out. And so if I could be, I think I was being used as an example. Mm. So I'm, I'm sort of been up, maybe not in the secular world, but in the Catholic world, I have been speaking out. I think people should have a free choice to decide whether you want something that's experimental or not. 
you can you can do your own reading. You can make your own decision. I, but don't make me get it. Don't make my soldiers who are out there in the battlefront. I have a stack of letters that I've been writing for people to help them to not get the vaccine because they don't want the vaccine and for their own reason. And I've written, I've guided people through religious reasons. But and, I think you said it nicely because I'm sure listeners are thinking, well, I want to know exactly why she didn't want the vaccine because that'll make the story make more sense. But I think the reality is it doesn't matter why you didn't want the vaccine. You didn't want the vaccine. Uh, and, and people will differ in why they wouldn't want it necessarily. Mm-hmm. But they didn't make the decision on you based on the fact that it was a religious exemption. They just said, you've got to get it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Chris will explain more about that, how they sort of stumbled through that. It wasn't done very well in the letter. Because it was a it was a form letter with my name on it. It was just a, it was not even, I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but it was just basically a draft. It wasn't meant to go out to me, but it did. Oh, <laughs> and, and um, how long were you not able to take care of your patients? It was um, about 15 days. So it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. I had to cancel surgery. I had a couple women call for an abortion pill reversal. I had to try to, we had to find somebody else. And so a lot of people were asking for help in many ways. And so um, I had to kind of put that, it was a basically a 15 day forced vacation for me. So what is it that led you being able to start to practice again 15 days later? Chris Ferrar, the Thomas More uh, lawyers are just superb. They're, they're fighters for religious freedom and they were able to weave a beautiful expression of how we should be able to um, not be forced to take something, especially that would affect our body, especially if it's something that is against our our moral conviction and religious conviction. To take something that is either tainted with or or uh, studied by aborted fetal tissue. And he he Chris will explain it, but he did a beautiful job in expressing that. And it and I think unfortunately for the government, they chose probably the wrong person. Because if there's going to be somebody who's going to be doing something for religious purposes, it would be me. You might, and they, they shouldn't really judge anyone, but I think I'm because I walk around with my billboard on all the time of what I do and who and who I do it for. My, since my commander in chief is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'd serve him by serving the poor and the sick. And I know I'm speaking to two heroes who do the same thing, but because I'm wearing the habit, it was sort of a little bit a little more of a not a wise person to target. So I think, uh, and plus, I you know, being of Irish heritage, I like to have a little fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, sister, at at some point during those 15 days, did you did you ever doubt your decision? Did you feel like, well, this is it? I'm I'm not going to practice medicine here again. I've I've lost. Or what was that like? Um, well, I was working on renewing my Virginia license. So in case they did that, everything, everything is always in God's hands. I never worry too much about things. Um, Chris was such a great, uh, guide and hero. We could, we would continue to fight this. They thought we'd have to actually go to the Supreme court to fight this, but they, I think they, I think they realized from the very beginning that this was kind of a rid- ridiculous issue to fight with me because of what I do. I serve the poor. I do what the, I l- do what liberal people like. You know, I do free <laughs> surgery. I don't even take a penny. I do free surgery for the poor. We run a pro bono physical therapy diabetic clinic. Um, now they may not like that we reverse abortions. That might be against their their <laughs> desires. Um, but so we do all this to serve those in the Washington DC area. So, uh, so did then, somebody realize it was a bad look, a bad optic to be picking on somebody doing what you do? Right. That was, I think that was it. And they, um, and the good news is that I think they have now had to accept everybody's religious exemption. I, I don't know anyone who's had it rejected. Oh, so really? really? Yeah. 
Because I read yeah. in one of the articles about you that there was kind of a sort of Damocles hanging over your head that they said, well, for now you can have it, but we may revoke it in the future. Right. That- they, said, they have said that initially it was September and Chris said that's not going to work. So now it's till every year we're going to have to write a little letter to say that, uh, you know, the, to about my religious exemption. So, but the city had to pay uh, the Thomas More $30,000. Oh, oh my. my. Yeah. It's not much for a lawyer, but it's for what they did and the legwork they did and everything, you know, I'm sure they would have gotten more from it, but. Well, with uh, poverty, that would be a lot to pay. Oh, for me, it would be a lot. It was huge. But for the, them, the, you know, the amazing. They, were, they told me from the beginning it was they were going to do this um, for for me for free. And so I was really grateful. And then and Chris said he wanted to help anyone. He feels so, Chris Ferrara, so passionate about this fight of, against religious freedom. This is really what it's, the core issue is. That but our you know, the, the, the amazing thing that sadly isn't all that amazing, sister, is I would be willing to bet most of our listeners have heard little to nothing uh, of this story in the mainstream media. This may be the first time they've heard of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember seeing a little snippet about it uh, on one of the media outlets. I don't remember which one, but certainly never got the follow-up. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that mainstream media is not going to carry the fact that not only did you win, but they had to pay your legal fees because that's such a beautiful punctuation to the sentence. But that's been buried, you know, in the headlines. But isn't that the way the devil works? I mean, this is a, we're in a satanic battle. Mm. You know, I, I really believe we are. This is a battle, not just my little religious exemption thing, but everything we've discussed. And it all base is starts in the annihilation of the mother, the baby's womb. Mm. So, sister, how do you think this issue ties in with other religious freedom issues like transgender hormonal therapy or or surgery for instance well i think i think that again i'm going to i sound like a broken record but i think that when you we have the devil has attacked the most precious the, the our child in the womb and you see right now we had a with this whole thing with roe v wade turning around we've had pro life uh, um, offices here thrown red paint and revenge, revenge. They're already getting ready to fight. They seem so adamant to want to just continue the annihilation of our babies, and 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 this um, all these are annihilation. The transgender to to be able to allow five year old children to be able to change their sex and and to try to infiltrate this in their minds and their grades in the schools and everything. It five years of age, I was thinking more about whether I was going to, you know, whether we're going to be able to get McDonald's that night. Or, I mean, I was thinking, you know, simple little children things, not wanting to think that I'm a a girl or a boy. And this is just trying to destroy the child. So sister, as we uh, wrap up the interview, what's the most important thing you would like listeners to know from your experience with having your license Temporarily taken away. Well, I just uh, can I just give a message um, to be in the state of grace. We're in a battle uh, at every level. To the the family is being attacked. Um, so, for you Catholic listeners, please keep yourself pure. Um, confession, Eucharist, because the the best way to be the Lord's instrument is to be a, a whole, you know, an empty vessel that He can work through, and you can see Him clearly by staying in the state of grace as best you can. Like St. Philip Neri said, Lord, don't leave me for a moment. I can't be trusted. So we always have to have <laughs> holy reverence. But but be prepared. Um, but don't be afraid and don't be discouraged because God is ultimately in charge. And you know, keep each other in prayer. And um, thank you for listening and thank you for allowing me to come and I'm just saying John the Baptist, the far better one is to come next, which is Tom Ferrara. Chris Ferrara. Chris Ferrara. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking to him. He sounds like a wonderful man. Sister, thank you for being with us. Thank you for for standing up and helping get the religious exemption to be established in Washington, D.C. God bless you, sister. Bye-bye. And we're back on Dr. Doctor with our next special guest, 
Christopher Ferrara. Chris is an attorney. He's a good attorney. And he got some good Jesuit training at Fordham College and Fordham Law School. He works for the Thomas More Society and has lived in Richmond for the last nine years with his family. Chris, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks for having me on. It's a privilege. Chris, we're happy to have you with us. You know, now we know from experience that sometimes attorneys think differently, you use language uh, differently <laughs> than the rest of the world does. So we're going to look to you to be our guide and we're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Help us out with vocabulary. But you know, I think we'd like to begin with this idea of what's the difference between kind of a religious exemption and a conscientious objection. In other words, if an employee uh, at a company says. I don't want to clean the bathrooms. I've got a conscientious objection to that. Is that the same thing as a religious exemption? Or help us help us walk through those differences, if there are any. Well, sometimes there's an overlap, but there is a distinction. So here's the distinction. A conscientious belief is any belief that you hold so strongly that you don't want to violate it. That's not necessarily religious belief. Right. A religious belief is also a conscientious belief, but it is held with a religious conviction. Does it have to be part of an organized religion? No. Does it have to be consistent with the tenets of your own named religion? If you're a Catholic, you could take a position theoretically that departs from the mainstream of the church, as in the case of vaccination. Many bishops say vaccination's A-OK, and you say, no, I have a religious objection to it. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be consistent, even with the tenets of your own nominal denomination. But it does have to be held with a religious conviction. And what is a religion? It's part of a system of beliefs regarding ultimate truths. So, for example, if I do this, I will be condemned to hell. Mm. Not if I do this, it will bother me. So Uh there's an element of this that involves ultimate beliefs. Now, courts will not define an ultimate belief. They will simply say that if you have a religious belief, that's the first requirement. And number two, it's sincerely held. You're not just feigning that you have a belief. Mm. Then it's entitled to protection under the First Amendment. And it's also entitled to protection under civil rights laws, such as Title VII and the human rights laws of various states. But it has to be religious. It can't be yoga. It can't be, (laughs) I like to keep my body pure, unless keeping your body pure is held with religious conviction. Mm. That's the distinction. And as you see, sometimes there's an overlap. So are the laws all religiously oriented or are there some laws that are conscience oriented? And the reason I ask that to to me is that conscience could become the new relativism. It's like, oh, I believe it my conscience. It's in this inviolable sphere of protection that you cannot penetrate. There are some states that have conscience laws, uh, but those conscience laws would involve a moral belief. Mm-hmm. Not just any arbitrary belief that. So, for example, in Mississippi, there's a conscience law that allows someone to refuse to be involved in abortion or contraception in a medical setting, and that's just a matter of conscience. Now, that's a rather exceptional law. Okay. So, generally, the category you're looking to is a religious conviction, because religious convictions are absolutely entitled to protection, assuming they're sincerely held. You're not just faking religious belief. How do you? How can a court tell if they're sincerely held? Well, that's another good question. Generally, the inquiry into sincerity is very limited. Courts are very reluctant to judge the sincerity of beliefs, and you rarely see that as an issue in religious liberties cases. We at the Thomas More Society, which is doing great work on this throughout the country, are litigating a lot of these cases, and I would say 90% of them, 90% plus, the sincerity of the belief is not questioned. They may attack it as not really a religious belief. They may say, oh, it's just your philosophical belief. You have a philosophical objection to being vaccinated. Or you are a yoga practitioner and you like to keep your body pure so you won't be vaccinated. But sincerity is a very tough thing to judge. Now, it's possible in a particular case to attack someone's sincerity. Someone might admit elsewhere that he's just faking it. Or maybe he's taken the same uh, medication or vaccine in other circumstances and he's He's decided he's not going to do it in this case. But that's another interesting development. Even if your religious belief is inconsistently held, you don't (laughs) believe it on Tuesday, but you might believe it on Wednesday, you still have an argument. You're just not very good at your religion. You You don't have to be consistent. (laughs) Because courts are reluctant to get involved in these inquisitions. Well, did you believe that a week ago? You didn't believe it six months ago. (laughs) Because then then the court becomes a religious tribunal. 
So it's a pretty easy standard to get over the threshold with. Now, but I think, happens, I think it's an interesting distinction because we've heard this before, sometimes when Catholic hospitals are attacked around, say, abortion. And you would say, well, a general surgeon can't just refuse to take out an appendix, but he wouldn't be refusing with a religious vigor and a religious conviction like Tom or I would be refusing uh, to do an abortion. I'm right. afraid I'll go to hell if I do that. Right. Uh, I really like that distinction. I think that's helpful for listeners. Yeah, and it can it can get somewhat murky, but where it's murky, that's exactly where courts don't want to conduct some kind of inquisition into whether your belief is truly sincerely held or truly religious. Oh, good for them. So tell, so tell, us about the, tell us about the Thomas More um, Society. What what should listeners know about what you guys do? Well, you know, I I had practiced civil rights law in the primarily in the pro life arena for many years. I had founded my own organization, the American Catholic Lawyers Association, back in 1991, and I was basically easing out of the profession. But we tried this case uh, in Philadelphia, an injunction case involving a pro life advocate. The uh, local abortion mill wanted to impose a buffer zone on him. I represented this advocate. It was quite dramatic in some of the things he said, and the court denied the injunction. My co-counsel was a Thomas More Society attorney who said, you really should join us. So after I thought I was easing out of the profession, I came right <laughs> back in. And these guys are amazing. They have, they have explosively grown over the last few years. They've got top-notch attorneys all over the country. It's really an honor that they would even think I'm worthy to join their company. And they're doing just fantastic work. They're racking up one victory after another. Uh, not to toot my own horn, but one of the things we did in California was we got, I think it was the first injunction in the country, shutting down the governor's attempt to close churches, oh, in the limiting the spread of COVID. It was the right. case of Father Burfitt versus Governor Newsom. And it was a judge uh, out in one of the California counties who basically got it right from the very beginning before the Supreme Court really clarified this case in the Tandon decision. And he basically said, looking at Supreme Court's first decision in Brooklyn Diocese, you have all these other places that are open for business. Right. You have marijuana dispensaries, liquor stores, abortion mills, they're all open. So why can't you just add churches to the list? And he did. So uh, we won that case. And they've been winning cases for religious liberty all over the country. Uh, Attorneys like Steve Cramden, uh, my co-counsel, Michael uh, Michael McHale, and numerous other skilled attorneys. It's run by some great guys, Andy Bath. Thomas Ulf, and Tom Brecka, who persevered and won that tremendous victory in Now versus Scheidler. Oh, and yeah. Is that the RICO case? Ending the use of RICO against pro-lifers. So these guys are, are First Amendment warriors. Hmm. And as I say, it's really an honor to join the organization. I would urge everyone to support the Thomas Morris Society. I don't think yes. anybody's doing better work in this field than TMS, as we call it. How Chris, many, you know, uh, hearing, you, hearing you reference churches alongside of other businesses, that, and it felt like during the pandemic so many times that religious organizations were treated were being treated differently, and then people made legal arguments to the same. But but they are treated differently. I mean, a tattoo parlor seemed to be treated better. Certainly, an abortion clinic seemed to be treated better. Do you feel like judges? see it that way? Or do you feel like they recognize all along, wait a second, this is an injustice? How does that work? Well, a lot of judges didn't see it. And one of the reasons they didn't see it was a very unfortunate concurrence by Justice Roberts in one of the early uh, church closure cases, in which he basically said that the court should defer to the judgment of health bureaucrats, citing a a case Um, from 1905 versus Massachusetts, in which uh, someone was fined for not taking a smallpox injection. Oh. Now, smallpox back then had a, a mortality rate of 30%. Right. And this person, I think he was fined $50. So there was a denial of an emergency re- injunction request to the Supreme Court, and Justice Roberts wrote a totally unnecessary concurrence. It was an emergency application. It's not on the merits. The court just denied an emergency injunction. And Roberts decided he would weigh in and write this concurrence which really has no binding effect. It's just one judge's opinion. Mm-hmm. And that was picked up by a hundred or more judges mm-hmm. as binding law. And the standard was so-called Jacobson deference. We have to defer in times of emergency to the decisions of executives issuing these executive orders. Well, ultimately with the Brooklyn diocese decision, that went right out the window and yeah. the court laid down a very simple principle. What's good for Costco is good for churches. 
Yeah. <laughs> Costco's open. Churches have to be open. I like uh, that. And the one thing you should know, in Tandon, the case of Tandon versus Newsom, the court laid down a very firm rule. And the rule is this. If any comparable secular activity is treated better than churches, the state has to have a compelling reason for that disparate treatment, a standard the state almost can almost never meet. Wow. So under that rule, the church closure is basically ended. Wow. I never thought we'd be saying, God bless Costco, but- uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's move on to Sister Didi's case. What do you sure. think led to the D.C. Department of Health doing what they did to her? Uh, bureaucratic intransigence, mm. uh, wanting to uh, win an argument, uh, taking a stand. You know what happens. It's human nature. You raise your flag and then you won't put it down. Yes. But the idea that Sister Didi had to be vaccinated when she had acquired T-cell immunity demonstrated exactly. by a that's not easy to get. She had a T-cell immunity test. She had worked throughout the pandemic with no vaccination, uh, providing free medical services to the right. poor in Washington, D.C. Well, this is the unusual thing that Tom and I brought up with Sister when we were talking. If I were the district and I wanted to pick an example, I don't think I would have chosen Sister yeah. Didi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would have chosen a, a better subject, I think. And she felt the same way. Uh, yeah. So that really was a peculiar turn of events, wasn't it? Well, she was uh, basically the lodestar plaintiff. I mean, really a nun and a habit providing free medical services and you're going to take her license away. <laughs> because she's equities. putting people at risk. Where did that statement, because she's putting people at risk? Oh, it wasn't even that. The, the standard that they enunciated for taking away her license temporarily was undue hardship to D.C. Health. D.C. Health is the D.C. Health. Department. So what would the hardship be? That D.C. Health doesn't employ her. The hardship standard is for an employer. An employer would say, for example, you have to work on Sunday because I have nobody else. So it's a hardship and I can't give you a religious exemption. So you have to work on Sunday. But ah. DC Health doesn't employ her. So there's no conceivable hardship to DC Health if she provides free medical services for other hospitals. Hmm. So it seems that they just plucked this standard from the employment context and stuck it into a form letter. And they were denying all kinds of people. But we were able to work that out. So, Chris, what's, did, the, what's the latest with Sister's case? I mean, that the D.C. Department of Health, as she shared with us, they've sort of said, you're okay now, but we might come back after you a little bit later for your license. Where do things stand with her in that case now? Well, actually, that, 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 that might have been true. The initial proposal uh, said that. Mm. But we said, no, not, nothing doing. It has to be clear that she gets a license renewal, renewable mm. annually with no conditions. And she mentioned that uh, there was some money that had to change hands after that. They paid attorney's fees to the <laughs> Thomas More Society. And I didn't see yeah. that publicized in uh, print anywhere. So, Well, uh, it was a settlement, so it wasn't a, a, actually a court order. We didn't have to go that far. Sure. And, and I understand that it opened the door for them to finally issue some other religious exemptions. Yeah, they, they became more reasonable. And uh, with the cooperation of their... Uh, Attorney General, the District of Columbia has its own Attorney General, not the United States Attorney General. Yes. We were able to get a number of other licenses restored. And I think what happened was they were using this form letter. They got locked into a bureaucratic paradigm of just denying everybody's exemption requests. But after Sister Deidre broke the logjam, then it became easier to get other people restored to their licensure. Well, Chris, that's a good segue and sort of changing a view to the future. You know, whether it's this particular case that happened to be related to vaccines or Tom and I mentioned before you joined us some other pretty famous examples, whether it's, you know, gender affirming care or participating in euthanasia or abortion, what needs to be done legally to protect physicians and, and other healthcare professionals uh, as we look to the future? Well, that is a daunting question. So I have a case in New York State involving uh, a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. It implies to, to physicians, to nurses, to rehabilitation therapists, the whole array of medical employees. Hmm. And we sued in the Northern District of New York on the grounds that you can't mandate Catholic physicians and others who have religious objections to vaccination to be vaccinated on condition of losing their jobs. And <laughs> happy to say we got an injunction uh. from a judge in the Northern District. He said, you can't fire these people for uh, expressing a religious objection to vaccination. Stunning victory, total victory. Then we went to the Second Circuit <laughs> and a three-judge panel 
found a way to reverse that decision. And now we're in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll get a merits review. They'll grant a petition for certiorari. But on one of our emergency applications in that case, Justice Gorsuch wrote a blistering dissent, 14 pages long, wow. from the court's refusal to grant us an emergency injunction pending appeal. That's not a ruling on the merits. We just say to the Supreme Court, while you're thinking this case over, give us an emergency injunction. Hmm. They did not grant that. And Justice Gorsuch dissented in a 14-page dissent. And he said, and I quote, today, we not only fail these applicants, we fail ourselves. And he concluded by saying, let us hope this is not the final chapter in this sorry story. Oh, this grim, grim affair, I think he called it. So they're deliberating that case now. We hope we'll get some good news and that these uh, medical professionals, top-notch physicians among them, will will get their jobs back. Mm. But, but right now, like, New York's situation is awful. It sounds like what you're saying, though, is what, what we need for the future is some really solid legal precedents that people could turn to and say, nope, this has already been decided. Yeah, and, and basically where a vaccination is concerned, the Supreme Court has to make it clear that there is no f- exception to the First Amendment for vaccines, especially these vaccines. Ah, good point. Yeah, good because point. somehow the, there's, there are blinders, judicial blinders come on when it comes to a vaccination. Hmm. Uh, there's still this idea that we should defer to public authorities when they demand vaccinations, but there's really no distinction between closing a church as a violation of the First Amendment and forcing someone to be vaccinated as a violation of the First Amendment, the free exercise clause. Chris, this has been a tremendous interview. In, in wrapping up, what what final insights would you like to share with listeners on this topic? Well, what you have to do to prevail is, as, as Scripture tells us, persevere. So perseverance is going to be key. Keep fighting these legal battles. If you're in trouble with an issue like this, contact the Thomas More Society. If it's in my area, I could handle the case. They have many attorneys throughout the country. They basically, they basically cover all 50 states. But wow. don't give up. Fight, fight, fight until until you achieve victory. And what is the best way for people to contact the society? If you go to the Thomas More website, there's an intake form, and you can supply information about your case, and someone will get in touch with you. Or you can contact um, the management directly, Andy Bath, Tom Alp, Tom Brecca. And uh, if it's in my bailiwick, they'll send it my way or they'll send it to one of the other attorneys in the network. Well, Chris, thank you for your work. God bless you and the Thomas More Society. And uh, we'd love to have you back to update us on Ah. more victories in the future. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this week's medical trivia question to review. Tom pointed out earlier that the Medical University of South Carolina, where I have a very close friend who's the chairman, what percentage of their graduates are practicing in rural areas six to eight years after they graduate medical school, Tom? It's a pretty astounding amount, 71%. Wow, I don't know what they're impressive. doing though. And I have to say, I have an old colleague when I was in the military who was down at Medical University of South Carolina. And uh, I used to do this column on plants in the skin. And I am now helping write, I think, five of their medical students there articles on how plants interact with the skins. And they're delightful students to work with. So I am thoroughly impressed. And number two, uh, another place in the South, University of Mississippi is 66%. And East Tennessee State is just under 66, two thirds. God bless them for doing that. Now, here's a little bit of trivia. My institution, the University of Florida, as you pointed out, number 34 on the list, only 44%. Listeners, I was accepted into medical school as part of a program that was supposed to keep physicians in the rural panhandle of Florida. Okay, it didn't work out so well for me, or at least from their perspective, it worked out great for me, from my perspective, (laughs) Uh, but not from their perspective. But that is fascinating. Beautiful. So, Chris, I bet we have a top three takeaway list. Yeah, you'd bet right. Although it's tough to pick. This is a great episode, if I do say so myself. But I think <laughs> one of them one of them has to be, I love the statement that Sister Didi said. She said, be prepared, but don't be afraid. Uh, I think that just really encapsulates so many things. <clears throat> We've got to be prepared to fight. Uh, and, and, you know, we asked her what she worried about the most. And remember how charmingly she said, you know, I don't worry about a lot. <laughs> I thought yes. that was really beautiful yes. the way she said that. I think number two is this idea, and you pointed this out, you know, she stood up to the giant, 
to the yes. District of Columbia, you know, bureaucracy, she stood up and not only did she win, but she really opened a set of floodgates for other people to win the same fight. How many times have we been told, literally or figuratively, you cannot beat the giant? Uh, and yet she's a great example that she did beat the giant and others uh, benefited because of her willingness to stand up. And then finally, I think what Chris just left us with uh, in his closing remarks and that idea that perseverance is key. Uh, yes. Another biblical truth, right? Don't give up. Keep fighting. Winston Churchill, never, yes. you know, yes. never give the same up. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And keep fighting because if you fight hard enough, long enough, there's a good chance you'll emerge victorious just as Sister Didi did. What a great example. And her example for families to be holy, her for plea for us to be holy, stay close to the Lord. Uh, couldn't agree with more. Thank you for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top where you can search over 260 episodes by topic or guest. And if you feel absolutely compelled to see our image in the form of video, we're now available as a video podcast. Just click on YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. If you have a question or you've got an idea for an episode, we'd love to know what you, uh, what you have to think. Click on submit a question and let us know. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.